0: Welcome to the Wisconsin Football Coaches Podcast with your hosts, Tom Swiddle, Tom Yashinsky, and Paul Nowinski. Now let's join the guys.
1: Hello and welcome to episode nine of season two of the Wisconsin Football Coaches Association Podcast. I'm Tom Swiddle, head football coach at Wauwatosa East and past president of the WFCA. I'm joined by my co-host, Tom Yashinsky, head coach at Onalaska and WFCA Northern Vice President, and Paul Nowinski, former coach at Mozanie and a WFCA Hall of Famer. Gentlemen, it's, it's been a while since uh, we've gotten together for a, po- a podcast. I was out of town for nine days. Paul was gone for a week. So I think where I'd like to start tonight is just to uh, uh, kind of catch up with you guys. Paul, I'm going to start with you. Um, those videos you sent me from Mardi Gras were, were pretty interesting. And uh, I, I have to ask you, um, why wasn't anybody having fun down there? It just didn't look like anybody was having fun.
0: I got to tell you, it was it's a bucket list, and it was something my buddies and I wanted to do. And it far exceeded any expectation. Weather was great. Uh, people were awesome. Food was great. Bourbon Street, the parades, saw some celebrities. I didn't get arrested. That
1: was a good sign. Um, just an unbelievable trip. Now, you, you, prior to the start of the podcast, you were telling me, you know, that quite a few beads were handed out. I just have, you mentioned celebrities. Were there any celebrities flashing down there that you got on video? No.
0: No, I, okay. didn't, I didn't. To be honest with you, I didn't take any real inappropriate pictures I could have. I just okay. tried to stay PG-13.
1: Okay. Okay, I mean I, Bourbon Street was just wall to wall people and and I've shared with you Paul that's that's on my bucket list as well to get down in New Orleans for that. Um Tom, you spoke at the Wisconsin Dells clinic uh, at the beginning of the month and uh, how did that go?
2: Yeah, no, it was good. They do uh they do a great job at the Dells of putting on Um, I think one of the, one of the up and coming clinics here in the state outside of the state clinic, because they get 130 people, they're in the middle of the state and they're going to keep expanding it. And, uh, and, and it's super reasonable, 25 bucks a person. Um, they're not out there to make a ton of money. Um, just a, a, a really good thing that I would, if I was, uh, somebody in the state, I'd put that on my calendar already for next year. Um, because it's, it's a really good one. Spoke up at Glacier two weekends ago as well in Minneapolis. So, uh, been busy, and then I got a speaking up at uh, North Dakota State here in April, the weekend after our clinic. So yeah, a lot uh, of stuff coming up.
1: Do you regurgitate the same topic for all the clinics, or do you come up with something different each time?
2: So the Dell's one and the Glacier ones, I did two different talks, but those are getting combined into for the for the NDSU. So the NDSU one, because it's such a different audience, will be a repeat of those two that I had. Paul, well.
0: uh, Tom Yashinsky. I talked to two coaches right at the Dells. They loved it. They said you did a super job. They said it was really neat to be able to once again have that close contact with coaches. You know, and really d- diverse topics. Really thought it was a good clinic.
2: And and I'll tell you when I when I present at a clinic, I'm going to tell you exactly how we do things and what we do. Like I, one of my biggest pet peeves at clinics is where people try to hide stuff or they 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 talk around a topic or they just don't want to give you what they do because they're afraid you're going to use it. If I talk at a clinic, I'm going to tell you exactly what we do and how we do it. And hopefully you get something out of it rather than than talking around it. And, and you know, and, and hoping that you don't uh, you don't pick up what we do because you might use it to beat us. Everybody watches film. I'm, I'm 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 there to help guys, not not hide stuff.
1: Well, you should be commended for that because I've been at far too many clinics where where that has happened, you know, things remain secret. Hey, fellas, we're doing something really different uh, tonight with this podcast. Normally we cover what we consider to be hot topics in the state, uh, things that really affect football in the state of Wisconsin. We've also highlighted individuals, you know, Hall of Famers, and we've talked about their careers. Um, Tonight, we're getting away from all of that. Tonight, the focus is about entertainment. Now, guys, I consider myself an amateur historian. I'm really in the history. I used to teach history. Um, and As you know, I'm really in the football. And you put them together, I'm really in the football history. And I thought I knew a lot about the game of football. I really did. I'm far more educated in it than than the average uh, person would be. Um, I thought that up until I read a book how football became football i was simply blown away by the detailed evolution of the game and quite frankly all the different tidbits of information uh, in that book um and there's only we're only going to be able to scratch the surface of of what's in that book so gentlemen it is my pleasure to welcome the author of how football became football wauwatosa wisconsin's own timothy p brown Tim, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thank you, Tom and, and Tom and Paul. So appreciate uh, you guys invite inviting me. You bet. Now, you've written three books on football, how football became football, Hut Hutt Hike, a history of football terminology, and Fields of Friendly Strife, the Dole Boys and Sailors of the World War I Rose Bowl. Tim, I don't know that anybody has ever researched football, like you have reached, uh, researched football. And I, I have to ask you why football?
3: Well, you know, like I, I assume all three of you guys, you know, played the game you know, when you were kids. Um, and I did too. And I, I coached a little bit. I, you know, I coached for, at Tose East, uh, just one year JV. And then I ended up, I G8 at Colgate. I was an assistant coach at Washu U and St. Louis and you know, then became, you know, went into business and, uh, but I just always loved the history of the game. And, and like you, you know, I was, I was certified to teach history at one point. And, uh, you know, so the, the two kind of came together. And at one point I found a topic I wanted to research, which was, you know, the fields of friendly strife book and kind of one thing led to another. And since then I've spent a lot of my time, you know, chasing the history of the game and how it came about. I-
1: you know, I have to ask you in terms of just researching how football became football. How long did it take you to get all of that information? Uh,
3: yeah, so, I mean, it, it's it's one of those things where, you know, once you have the base, things can go a little bit quicker, right? Because you, you just know a lot more. Uh, but, it, you know, probably each of the books, well, the first two probably each took, you know, two and a half years to do. I mean, it wasn't full time, but you know, I spent a lot of time on them. And then Hut Hut Hike is, uh, you know, probably took nine months. Um, and now I'm working on a couple more that'll that'll go hopefully a bit quicker.
1: Well, I can't wait to see the the new books uh, that you will eventually get out. Um, so one more question on research. I mean. W- Where do you go to get all that that information? What do you just spend time in the library? Do you just uh, go through old newspapers? I mean, you know, there's so much information in there. I mean, you're you're probably looking at, uh, you know, colleges, football yearbooks and things like that. Um, So, you know, how did you do all that? Where did you go? So I did visit, you know,
3: some archives. know i've I've visited some military archives for the first book and then i've been out to university of michigan they've got a fabulous archives miami of ohio um you know eastern michigan there's a couple you know here and there but the bulk of it is online um newspaper arc newspapers.com which is a newspaper archive that has you know millions and millions of records um and then you know i keep track of this i've i've reviewed you know, something on the order now of, you know, 3,200 college yearbooks, you know, looking at their football sections, you know, going back to 1890 till, you know, very recently. Um, you know, just looking for images, looking for things that look strange, trying to understand what was going on. Um, and then just, you know, I've got a behind me, which you can't see, you know, I've got the rule books that take us back to, you know, 1887, uh, at least college year rule books. I've got all kinds of books from coaches, you know. Uh, so anyways, I mean, it's just a kind of a mishmash of things. But if if there was one place that I, re- one source that I rely on, it's probably newspapers.com.
1: Okay. Tom?
2: When you go about putting this all together, how how do you decide what order you're going to put it in? Chronological? do you try to group some more topics? Like what's the, I can just, you know, I can see, I can picture you having this giant map on a wall of all the, all these different topics and all these different things, but then how do you get them so that they, they read left to right front to back in a book in a manner that makes sense for for you and everybody else?
3: Yeah. So it, it depends on, you know, each of the books is organized a little bit differently, but fundamentally they're chronological and a lot of it is just, you know, in order to understand what happened in 1920, you kind of have to understand what happened in 1880, right? So the chronology is kind of the fundamental organizing, uh, you know, principle. But like in football, how football became football, I also broke the game down into three major regions or eras, I should say. And then within each era, I subdivided that into things like player equipment, uh, officials and officiating, uh, the field and stadium, so and you know plays and techniques, things like that. So it, you could kind of talk about a topic for a while and discuss, you know, create themes, but then still do it in chronological, in a general chronological order. So it just kind of depends on what what the nature of the book is, and you know, you kind of. You try to make it make sense, and hopefully it worked. Paul?
0: Well, when Tom gave me your name and information, I, I'm a history teacher, was a history teacher, so I break everything down. But you had some really neat experiences, and you are not only involved in being an author, you part, you're part of a podcast. You're also part of, uh, uh, like, a, you have your own website, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. What, what's it called? Football Archaeology? Football Archaeology. Yeah. I mean, I went on there and and later in the show, we're going to talk about something because you mentioned you're going through the history And one time, Wisconsin played LSU in, in the seventies. And um, there's a guy from Mosin that was on the Wisconsin team. And so when I was reading that little tidbit you had, he showed me the letter that the, you referred to that the LSU players or somebody wrote the Wisconsin players, like we're going to, we're going to destroy you. And he actually had a copy of that letter which was just fascinating to me yeah
1: go a little bit more into detail i mean so badgers are playing lsu and there's a little bad blood before the game is what is that what you're referring to paul
0: yeah well i'm like tim he, he he explains it better than i can, could ever.
3: well that's one i don't have at the top of my
0: head okay yeah wisconsin <laughs> was playing lsu and you know back then in the 70s it was you know, wisconsin football wasn't great LSU football was pretty good. And so some of the player one, one player wrote, knew somebody, and they wrote a letter to the Wisconsin player. And then that letter was passed around. It was attributed. I mean, Jim had a copy of the letter. It was really pretty cool. It was, it was you know, trash talking in the 70s. Yeah.
1: yeah,
3: yeah. Yeah, I mean, well, I've got a fun one probably going out tomorrow, maybe the next day. But, you know, somebody contacted me who's actually – uh his grandfather was involved in the in a game that was profiled in the the first post i ever did (laughs) you know and he contacted me last week so i put together an article about uh the pacific fleet teams of 1921 and and
1: 1920. it's just kind of a crazy article but it's pretty fun well you know and that's the kind of thing like i like books that i can't put down i mean I like reading a book, and, and your book, if I would have had the time and the ability to do so, I would have read it cover to cover. Like, at no point in, in your book, How Football Became Football, was I not just riveted by what I was reading. I mean, seriously, that that's how good that book is. And you've already oh, mentioned you. it. Thank you. Uh, you're, you're welcome. Um, you've already mentioned this, Tim, but, you know, you did divide – Uh, the history, if you will, of football into three different eras. So you have the emergence of the game, uh, 1869 to 1905, from crisis to ascendancy, 1906 to 1959, and television becomes king, 1960, and I'll just say to present. Um, How did you divide? I mean, what, what was it about those eras that you could define them as being different from an era to come what what were the things that you looked at that that you were able to divide them up in that way
3: yeah so i mean i I think the the start of the game to 1905 is really very simple i mean that's just the um the, the the crisis of 1905 1906 uh you know the introduction of the all of the rule changes occurred in 1906, and and really those continue. They kind of started in 1903, and they continued till 1912. They're just a whole host of of rule changes that, that fundamentally shifted the game. So that one was easy. Um, the 1960 uh, point. Anybody can argue that one. You know, with me should it have been 60 or some other time, but there were you know that was the point where television and television money really starts driving the game it's the point where african americans start really being a vital part of the game um not just kind of you know teams had a couple of guys they became part of the game you know starting at that point um and then it was also you know about the time when guys like you know sid gilman And a little bit later, Don Coriel, you know, really start implementing passing oriented offenses that are just fundamentally different than, than anything that had been seen before. So it was kind of the social situation, the financial situation, and then the play on the field just fundamentally shifted starting in 1960 or thereabouts.
1: Okay. Uh, And that, you know, makes total sense. and, And again, you know, in trying to, okay, what kinds of questions can we ask of you and, and so on, um, you know, a place where I would like to start. And, and mainly because this is something that has certainly been on the, uh, um, the minds of anybody connected to the game of football in, in recent history is a subject of safety. Um, you know, certainly the things that have gone down in the last 10 years or so with concussions and everything else. I mean, safety is, uh, has really, and and the emphasis on safety has really changed how people look at the game and also, you know, has driven other things um, in the game. Um, So you make a point in all of your eras where you talk about safety and perhaps in no era is is safety more defined than in, you know, the early 1900s. Um, talk about what the game was like and what it evolved in, in terms of the brutality of the game and the things that had to happen in order for the game to continue. Yeah, so, you know,
3: so football, American football uh, derived from English rugby and you know we actually borrowed it through the canadians but you know when we first created the first set of football american football rules came in 19, 1876 and basically they adopted the rugby union rules virtually word for word they made a couple of verbiage changes and one or two terminology changes but pretty much it was almost word for word so then uh they wanted to make some changes in the game and You know, at the time, rugby, you know, we think of rugby as Americans. We think of rugby as this game where there's lateral after lateral, you know, headed towards the sidelines. It's this wide open game and they're punting the ball all over the place. But that wasn't rugby back in the 1870s. Rugby back then was much more about what were called malls. And it's kind of the closest thing we have to today is the tush push. You know, it was the kind of scrummy mall sort of thing where, you know, basically they didn't pick the ball up very much they mostly kicked it and it was the Americans who um you know rugby at the time at the time had 15 players we ended up shortly you know or soon after we started making our own rules we made it only 11 players and that with fewer players on the field all of a sudden that ball was popping out a lot more so guys were picking it up and you know passing it you know lateraling it to their teammates and that opened up the game. And then rugby later adopted that. But then, um, you know, one of the, in in rugby, you can't tackle below the waist. Well, football changed that. We said, yes, you can tackle below the waist. And then that made, that really restricted the game. You know, it became much more of a power oriented game. And if you were a good team and you had bigger players in the next, you were better off just pounding the ball, you know, you had three downs to make five yards, and you just pounded the ball instead of punting it all over the place. So, and eventually that got into this whole mass play thing where, you know, you'd send three guys ahead of the guy with the ball through the hole. So there's these great mashups. Um, Guys used to sew handles on the side of their pants so that their teammates could throw them over the line. They would hurdle, you know, there was a guy named Weeks who played for Columbia who would hurtle over the line feet first so that he'd hit the opposing players in the face, you know, with the spikes, you know, I mean, it it was, there was just crazy stuff. And of course the, you know, at the time, the only, the, the, you know, they were wearing external, you know, kind of leather pads on their shoulder pads, which is where shoulder pads come from. And then, you know, head harnesses that were much like a wrestling headgear. Right. I mean, they didn't have helmets as we conceive of them today. So there were a lot of crust skulls and just all kinds of other, you know, spleen and liver injuries and everything else. Um, and so, uh, you know, they, then they started, you know, all the most of the rules around 1905, 1906 were all about uh, restricting mass play. So you could only have one guy in motion at a time. He could not be moving forward because in the past they could be running forward. Um, you had to have seven men on the line of scrimmage. You know, that's why we have that rule. It was to keep mass play, you know, because before they'd like pull guys that have a guard or both ta- guards or both tackles in the backfield, run through a hole. And it was just this brutal game. And so those were the things that changed at that time. And then, then you know, in the for the rest of the, in the second, you know, period, or era of football, you know, then you start having leather helmets, which started being pretty good. You have the introduction of plastic helmets in 1940, mouth guards in the late 40s. Um, You also change rules. So guys are down by contact, or, or just down, you know, I mean, for a long time, guys had you could crawl, you know, you got knocked down, you could crawl um, on the field, you know, because you had to be held down and held in place. Um, And then, you know, you move into the last era, you know, now kind of the modern era, and, you know, a lot of the rules were about uh, tackling techniques, you know, changes in that whole process, water discipline, you know, which used to be a huge thing, but really Gatorade, Gatorade changed the whole view of water discipline among football coaches. And that was, you know, late 60s. And then you also, you know, you have all the things like elimination of head slaps. Um, you know, and and now all the targeting and elimination of defenseless hits, crackback blocks, uh, down, downfield blocking below the waist. I mean, those are the kinds of things that, you know, have really changed the game dramatically over the past, well, now 150 some years.
1: And the fact that, um, I don't know if the proper term would be uh, governmental agencies got involved. I mean, it was, I mean, it went right up to the White House. You know the and you know President uh, Ted Roosevelt, Teddy Roosevelt, um, was an advocate of football. He loved football, and but yet he saw the brutality of the game. Um, eventually, could eliminate the game. Is that accurate? That that uh, it kind of happened like that. Yeah,
3: you know, I, I I've actually got I've been working on it for a while, and I can never. Quite get to finishing it up but i actually think the teddy roosevelt thing is a bit overblown i mean it was important uh but you know he had a son who was playing freshman football at harvard that year and i just i just wrote a i just published a, a tidbit about it within the past month or so but you know he busted it you know had a black eye busted his nose you know all kinds of things um so you know so yes teddy roosevelt was a big fan he believed that men had to be men and you know all of that stuff the muscular christianity was the term at the time um but you know for the most part i mean georgia at one point passed law banning football but that quickly you know went away there's been some government interventions here and there but it's mostly been policed by football organizations so state high school organizations have passed lots of restrictions. The NCAA passed all kinds of restrictions along the way. Um, and the, the NFL as well. So, but, you know, for the most part, you know, there's very little government inter- interventions about, you know, the way the game has been played.
0: Paul? Well, Tim, I know you talk about the 60s and TV, but how big an impact did TV have not only on safety, because a lot of times before TV, people actually had to be at the game and see the brutality and know, you know, now everybody sees a big hit and they're like, whoa, I mean, how big was TV, not only on safety, but just the impact of growing the game? Yeah, so,
3: you know, if you think about it, the, um, so the, you know, the biggest stadium in the country, you know, has, you know, maxes out at you know a little over 100,000, Right. And back, and those are fairly recent. I mean, you know, yeah, Michigan stadium was like 68,000 in the late twenties, but there were a lot of college stadiums that were pretty small. And so radio actually was one of the, you know, obviously newspapers before that, but radio was one of the first times when people were really concerned are going to, are people going to stop going to the games and, you know, the Big Ten, among other conferences, banned radio broadcasts for a while there because they were concerned about attendance. And the same thing happened with television. You know they, you know they restrict. I mean, the NCAA. Think about the NCAA. You know, in the fifties and sixties, there would be like one or two games on each weekend, and there was a long period where there was en- enough appetite for football that Amer- in, in a lot of American cities, you could watch more. Canadian football games than you could American football games on television in a weekend because the, the Canadians made it, made it accessible, you know, especially the colleges, you know, you couldn't, you know, they didn't, they they only had one game per week often showing. And then the NFL did a lot of the same thing. They They blacked out the games in the home, you know, for the home audience. So, you know, so television and, you know, has, obviously dramatically grown the game. You look at what's happened to football overseas and that's all television. Right. So, you know, it, it, and then, you know, as much as anything, the, the money that comes from television is just such a fundamental change. I mean, you know, think about things like, you know, so you had two platoon football starts in 45 and then the colleges got rid of it from like 52 to the early sixties, but it was money that led to the specialization of the game. Right. And to the day that Paul Brown and, you know, and the Cleveland Browns hired full-time assistant coaches because they had enough money to do so because of television, (laughs) you know, and and they had a decent gate too. Um, That allowed, Assistant coaches to study and break down the game at a level they never had before. And they had, they expanded the rosters because they had more money to pay players. And so all of a sudden, you got players who are specializing as either defensive players or offensive players. You got coaches who have more time to break things down. And so it's a, you know, it's kind of this cycle where everything just gets broken down in finer and finer detail. I mean, think about college staffs now, all these quality analysts and, you know, it's amazing what, what the resources that they have and how, how do they have it money? So television, I mean, has just, you know, obviously, I mean, it's changed the game on the field in in just generally, you know, certain rules, things but more than anything it's the the specialization that's resulted from that uh that, that has really had the most dramatic impact on the play on the
1: field and that money aspect and the commercialization of of football i mean obviously it's it's very easy to see um in your last era you know television um you know becomes the king but um even 100 years ago or longer yeah um, the way that that money um, formulated the game was was pretty interesting too. I mean, to to look at and, and you you speak of the University of Chicago um in your book. and um, you know, the fact that they were located where they were located, and um, you know, they had teams that were very willing to come and on the road to play them. Mm-hmm. Um, you made a point in the book to say, you know, like, I don't know, what'd you say? Like, like kale never played a game west of the Rockies until the late forties, you know? And, uh, yeah. West of the Alleghenies. Oh, okay. <laughs> Alleghenies. Okay. So yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like, you know, these, these, these schools were just so regional, you know, but teams were willing to, to go to Chicago because there was a payoff in doing so. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, so
3: it, it's a funny thing that so for a while, um, you know, fairly quickly, you know, by the mid or late 1880s, the really big games, which was like kind of the end of the year championship that typically involved uh Princeton and Yale, maybe Harvard or Penn, snuck in here and there. Those games could attract 45,000 people, and they'd play them at the Polo Grounds. You know, one of the versions of the Polo Grounds in, in New York, and So, but then the faculties got concerned about the commercialization. They didn't want these games being played off campus. So they said, you got to come on, you got to bring, come back on campus. So then what do they do? They build stadiums. So once you build a stadium, you know, it's the old uh, build it and they will come. Um, What happened there was they built it and they had to make sure people came. know they had to promote and they had to commercialize the game in order to get people to show up because they had to pay off the stadium um so yeah i mean so it, it just um anybody who had a big stadium and especially if you were in a big city like chicago or new york um you know you would play um you know you could play virtually your whole season at home because your opponents would get a bigger gate like Michigan, Michigan would get a bigger share of the gate playing at Chicago than they would playing in Ann Arbor back in the day. Cause you know, it was they're, you know, 25 minutes, 30 minutes from Detroit today, but it took a lot longer at the time to get there. Right. So they just didn't have, they didn't have the size of stadium that Chicago had all that kind of stuff. So, um, you know, Playing in big cities, Yankee Stadium used to host a lot of big games. You know, between college teams, neither one of them, which neither one of them was in New York City, but they'd play. Um, they'd play in you know in New York City because there were a lot of people there.
1: And let's talk a little bit about the game day experience. So you know, it took a while for football to realize that they should make this game a little bit more attractive. To fans, you know the thought that you could go to a stadium and they didn't even sell concessions in the stadium. You know you had people outside the stadium selling concessions, and you know the the fact that the the reason we have numbers on on football uniforms was for the fans so they could yeah. identify who was doing what. You know, S- speak to that a little bit because I find that just really yeah. interesting. That took so long to do those kinds of things.
3: Yeah. Well, you know, so the part of it is like the original orientation, you know, football started as a club, you know, guys from a school would form up. They'd play, you know, play guys from another school, many of whom they knew from prep school or whatever. And so so the whole thing was wrapped around the player experience, which also gets into we'll probably talk about it later, but the role of the coaches, you know. In the game but so it was all about the players and so there was a whole argument early on about whether how much they should cater to the crowd how much they should cater to the fans so a lot of coaches opposed, for instance numbers on jerseys because they didn't want scouts or the opposing team to figure out who number five was or who number 10 was even though the numbers were only on the backs at the time but you know one you know whatever they you know so so the numbering was all about the fans um most early stadiums did not have toilets there were outhouses out in a field somewhere near the stadium as you said earlier they didn't have concessions um those didn't come in till like 1910 or so um and another one that is you know people don't think about but the referees signals You know, all the for penalties, for safeties, for touchdowns, all that stuff. None of that existed until the people began recognizing that um, the folks in the stands had no idea why a penalty was called. You know, the the referee would inform the the players on the field and they might tell their coaches. But the people in the stands had no idea why 15 yards was being marched off um for certain plays they didn't know if a touchdown was scored if it was a touchback or a safety um so there, there's just a lot of confusion so um there was a guy named frank birch who started this and somewhere around 1915 or so he started doing these signals and he'd hand these slips to the guys in the press box ahead of the game but even then that didn't take off until radio came along and you know if, if you're a writer for a newspaper, you could go down after the game and ask the referee or a player what had happened on that big play. But if, because, you know, then you'd write it up and it'd show up in the paper the next day, but if you're doing radio, you need to tell the audience now what's happening. And so that was the real impetus for, you know, the, it wasn't the NCAA, but as an officials organization that said, okay, we're going to start using these referees signals kind of universally in 1929. But it was radio that drove that, you know, because nobody wanted to sit, you know, nobody wanted to be the announcer saying, well, I don't know what happened on the field, but, you know, Harvard (laughs) just got penalized 15 yards,
1: (laughs) you know. Yeah. You know, a a lot of things, I shouldn't say a lot of things, but things happen in the evolution of football kind of by happenstance. Like it, it just happened. And then it kind of carried on where, you know, somebody would hear about it Hey, we're going to do the same thing at our games. And then all of a sudden stuff became like rules or it's things that everybody did. Correct. Yeah. 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 I mean, there's, there's a lot
3: of instances where, um, you know, somebody establishes a rule, but you know, maybe it well, they don't get it quite right. You know, I, I mentioned to you, that, you know, I've listened to a couple of your last couple podcasts and, you know, um, uh, Wisconsin's initiated these rules about teams moving up or down based on how they've performed, you know, moving up and down a class. Well, maybe they didn't get it right the first time. Well, the same thing happens with every football rule. They, you know, best minds that they can get come together and try to create a new rule. Maybe they got it right. Maybe they didn't. So they tweak and tweak and tweak and tweak, and it just compounds over time so that, you know the game changes but a lot of things just it's like one place one guy chooses to do something different and people pick up on it and it just takes off like wildfire well you know tim you you talk about several
0: aspects of the game and the evolution i want to first of all focus on the fans because i'm really fascinated with the use of lights the introduction of alcohol, um, and the designs of stadiums. Because if you start looking at the history of stadiums alone, it's amazing how you, you know, throughout history, you find different uh, things. I I am a big historian here, and we used to play in the 50s. We played a team that they got here late, and to play the game, they took cars and surrounded the field with, with old cars and turned the lights on. And they played the game. Yeah. So I'm interested to find out when the first game was actually played with organized lights and alcohol and things like that.
3: Well, um, I haven't studied the alcohol issue. <laughs> <laughs> but, well, remember Paul's coming but from I'm Marty right, but I'm right no, that, that, because
0: I don't know if you're aware of it, but Wisconsin has just introduced alcohol in their stadiums in the south end zone. You know, they you could purchase alcohol I mean. I was at I went to University of Arkansas. You can drink there. Now there, I mean, there are people like, I was amazed when I went there this year to see the amount of people that were buying alcohol because I never went to a college game that really had alcohol sales.
3: Yeah. So, well, okay. So I got to set aside the alcohol thing. <laughs> I can tell you about when tailgating originated, but you know, that's a different story. Um, so, but with lights, those actually started indoors so there were there were games played in like you know what effectively were symphony halls and exhibition halls and stuff like that back in the uh, 1880s pretty much limited to new york and chicago maybe they were played here and there um and then there were all kinds of you know small towns whatever who strung up lights and would play like one game and it just, it just didn't work out, you know? Um, but, you know, as the technology around lighting got better, lighting as a normal, not even normal, but as something that wasn't an oddity really first came about in the 1920s. And so, I mean, the the first place I can, well, so when the, when lighting was, it was just terrible, you know, the, and, and you look at the like photographs of games, even through the fifties, it's all black. You see a couple of, you know, the background's all black, you know, part of that's the photographer's work too, but um, you know, the, the use of white and yellow footballs was part of their solution to playing under these really primitive light lighting systems and the stripes that we have on footballs today, are the same thing you know The those were put in place for for visibility purposes playing under the lights and you know the nfl had you know had white stripes until i just wrote about this but yeah you know, i want to say it's like 75 is when they finally gave them up um but you know they'd use white stripe ball for for night games um only um so yeah i mean it, it's You know, stadiums, I mean, here's another one you're talking about, you know, kind of gets back to the fan situation, but loudspeakers. You know, loudspeakers didn't exist in stadiums. Uh, You know, the the first stadium I'm aware of with loudspeakers was Kaminsky Park in like 1915. So it was a big deal to go to a game and the announcer could tell you, who was, you know, what was happening, because they'd have guys on the sidelines signaling to them what was happening on the field. Um, so it's, you know, that that whole fan experience and the night game thing is uh, you know, I mean it was like a like a revolution for a while. And and that's, you know, the the night there the nights, you know, is really or the lights is really what kind of led to the whole Friday night lights thing. You know, High schools mostly played on Saturdays back in the day but you know as they acquired lights they started staking claim to Friday nights and colleges that used to play on Friday nights did so less and less and less and that that's when we first got that separation really 1950s the separation between f- colleges playing on Saturdays and Friday and Fridays being the night for high school ball
1: why it just took years and years for things that we just take for granted now
3: to happen.
1: Now we we've already mentioned this, but I I would really like to hear um, you know your thoughts on this and and what you discovered. But when football began, and it, you know, it was a player controlled game, like the the players, and and the role of the coach was very very different, and. Um, You know, how long was that that the the, the players were, I'll just say, in control? And at what point and why did the profession of coaching change into something that um, gave them the say and the authority over things? Well, let me let me turn
3: that around with the question to you three. How many of you let your quarterbacks call the
0: place?
1: Well, I, I can speak for me. I only do it in a hurry up offensive situation. The way we we run our our you know our one minute drill is you know the quarterback calls the plays in that situation just to save time and not signal things in. But otherwise, you know, other for every other situation other than that, you know, we call the plays the coaches.
0: In, in two thousand two. We instigated an audible system with some limits. You know, like you could flip a play if we were on a toss right and the quarterback wanted to – We could talk, he could audible toss left. You know, it was very simplistic. But otherwise, no, you're not going to see many coaches going to let their right. – <laughs> okay. So, I mean,
3: so – that but that's – what's interesting is that's kind of the state of the game, right? Now, yeah. Now that's assumed, right? The coaches are going to call all the plays they're so much smarter than the kid on the field right and 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 they are <laughs> but but so if you go back to that original assumption that the, the game is for the players it was originated by the players and it was kind of a philosophy that you were supposed to depend not only on the players brawn but also their brain and so uh you know when the game began there were no coaches you know the only guys who knew anything about football were somebody that had just got stepped off the college campus so you know a lot of the early coaches were guys who you know were a year out of college or you know two years out of college and schools like yale continued with their graduate coach player that last year's captain would coach the team until 1915 is when kind of the, the you know the camels back was broken um and so you you slowly saw professional coaches being hired because you know what was going on is like if you were one of the stud schools like yale you knew you you'd always have a good captain running the team and and they'd have you know alums come back and teaching technique and things like that but if you were kansas state you had to hire and pay somebody to come out and coach right so so all those coaches in more remote locations, they had to be paid. And that's kind of how the whole coaching, professional coach came about. But even then they were mostly part-time coaches. They'd come in, coach for the season and go back home. That's what Pop Warner did. Uh, that's what, um, you know, that's what, uh, you know, Walter Camp did, you know, virtually everybody was a part-time coach. Stag was a real exception at chicago um and you know so but then eventually you know slowly it progressed so that guys were became full-time faculty members they typically coach basketball and baseball too or something like that and then eventually you know football became important enough earned enough money that they became full-time professional coaches
1: and 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 today they make more money than the governor does in every state sure, sure. so paul you had your hand up and then tom
0: you know, we've talked about the evolution. It's amazing. It, it you look at college sports, it's you know players, and then coaches kind of took control of things, and now we see it going almost full circle with NIL deals and everything. And players could get coaches fired. They're making more money than the coaches, it, it, and then definitely professional football is the same way. It's crazy how the game has evolved.
2: Tom. Uh, when did when did film come into play you know we're coaches we love watching that when did they start recording they start breaking down obviously the 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 16 millimeter was was probably one of the first ways but when did that all become the the habit or the the practice that we know it to be now
3: yeah so the first uh first known game that was filmed was uh uh either Harvard Yale or Princeton, Yale in 1903, and then Michigan and somebody a little bit later that year. But that was more like from a sideline filming thing. It was more t- something to go show at movie houses. Um, but the first place I'm aware of where they used motion pictures for coaching purposes was in 1908 at Oregon. Um, they had a guy named Mike Murphy, who was a very famous trainer at the time, and he was a very, you know, top-notch track trainer, and he used film to break down shot putting techniques, hurdling techniques, things like that. And then he started applying that to, to football. And so that was really the, the first place where that happens, um, for into the twenties, there was, you know, a lot of conferences banned film filming an opponent. You could film yourself, but not, you know, no advanced scouting, uh, using film. <laughs> um, and you know, so it it kind of slowly evolved and it was what like many things in football it might move along faster in one part of the country and not another uh, but i would say you know probably by the 30s uh, most teams were certainly self-scouting with film um, and using it to instruct their players um, probably a little bit longer before you know teams regularly had uh, film of their upcoming opponents.
1: So there were no low-level staffers like uh, Michigan had that were going out and, and uh, buying tickets to games and, and sitting up in the stands with their cell phones and filming things. Is right. that well, what you're saying, Tim? Yeah, and if you uh,
3: – <laughs> I live in Michigan.
1: Well, I know I'm, yeah. I'm not a
3: fan. Uh, <laughs> but the uh, – you know, so that whole thing about coaching from the sideline You know, if you're not signaling in the plays, you don't have to worry about somebody with the cell phone uh, breaking down your your signaling system.
1: What's interesting, and you mentioned before, Tim, the the, uh, signals that a referee would make in order to let the fans and radio and everybody else in the stadium know what had transpired in terms of penalties. As I was looking at your book again over the weekend, I saw on um, one of the pages you had like all the signals. They had one for the referee standing there and he's got his hand over his mouth you know, like this. And that meant that's a penalty because a coach was coaching during the game. Like yeah. you couldn't yeah. coach from the sidelines. I was like, you got to be kidding me.
3: Yeah, that was, uh... yeah. I mean, if you go back, there's a bunch of penalties that, just don't exist anymore. Um, but, but, you know, some of the, some of the things that that Frank Birch devised in like 1915, it's the same signal we use today. Right. Oh boy. Amazing. You know, like holding, you know, fundamentally the same, same signal, touchdowns, safeties, you know, things like that.
1: You know, and, and I, you know, we're kind of pushing up to the limit of our podcast here. There's just so much to talk about, um, you know that I, I don't know where, where to go right now other than what I'd like to do is I was amazed at the number of references you had in the book to the state of Wisconsin like there's there some really cool things that were a part of the evolution of the game that happened right here um, in the state are, are there a couple things that that you might want to mention
3: yeah yeah so I think that of them that i think are fun about you know state of wisconsin um one was that the uh the first legal forward pass in a game was thrown uh by st louis university versus carroll college in september of 1906 and the coach at st louis u a guy named eddie kokums had played at wisconsin and you know star player his brother played there as well but he ends up coaching down at St. Louis U, which is why they came up to Wisconsin, you know, for essentially you know training camp. And he ended up, uh, he is, if there's anybody who's the father of the forward pass, it's Eddie Kokums, and he came, he went down to St. Louis U, and he's the only guy, maybe Carlisle in 1906. They did, they were pretty innovative too, but. You know, most guys first time you can throw a forward pass. How do you do that? What's the technique? How do you throw a forward pass? Do you throw it underhand? Do you throw it overhand? Do you throw it
1: like a grenade with a stiff arm?
3: You, you know what do you do?
1: And so I've had quarterbacks that have thrown it like a grenade. I can guarantee you. <laughs> what
3: was your What was your record up here? <laughs> so, but anyway, you know, he was he. He devised a, you know, systems where basically it's kind of funny now, but he'd send like four guys out into a pattern and, um, and then the quarterback would yell hike. And that was a signal for the receivers to turn around as a, in what we'd call a button hook or hook now to catch the ball, you know? So there, and that, that lasted for quite a while quarterbacks yelling to the, to the receivers to turn around with. So, <laughs> hey, <that's you. laughs> like, um, so another, another one, uh, you know, Tom, you mentioned the Wisconsin Dells clinic, but one of the first coaches who did, who ran clinics, I don't think he was the first, but one of the first was a guy named Earl Tubbs, who was, he was uh superior university or not. He was superior high school's coach when Ernie Nevers played there in the um you know, late in, you know, tw- mid twenties or probably uh, uh, probably early twenties. Um, and then he became superior normal, which is now UW superiors coach. Uh, and that's when he started doing these clinics. So, you know, he got Newt Rockney and other people to come on up and um, he's, so he was one of the first guys to do coaches clinics, which, you know, among coaches, that's a big deal. He was also, um, I, I'm not sure if it was him, you know, there's other people, at least I've credited in the past, but he's got a patent. He was one of the first guys to patent the valve that you use to inflate a football. Because it used to be you had to unlace the football to reinflate the bladder and then relace it. And then it, it would leak out and blah, blah, blah. And so every time that it happened, you have to unlace it. He you know, he invented this valve that you could pump, um, pump with air using a needle to inflate the ball and then, but my last or my favorite wisconsin story is john lockney because in my estimation he for an everyday guy meaning he wasn't a coach he wasn't a player wasn't a, an administrator involved in football he had a bigger impact on the game of football than anyone in the history of the game and what he did was you know, back until, till he came along. You know, if you look back at old pictures, the football field was just barren. It had stripes every five yards. It had sidelines. It had a goal line. And, you know, after 1912, it had end lines. And he was the guy, he's responsible for, I think it's 83% of all the stripes that are on a football field today. So all of the stripes that are you know, the, the hash mark came in in, in 1933, but, you know, those hash marks are the lines that intersect, they they are perpendicular to, they intersect the yard lines. He created what officially are called inbound lines, but I call them Lockney lines. They're all those yard long stripes that run parallel to the yard line, or to the yard lines that are in the, the uh, that are in the, or the uh, hash mark area, as well as along the sidelines. So, you know, he was just a dad in in Waukesha. He came up with this idea. He creates this template, and they start lining the game, the field before the game, and everybody loved it. So it would just, it made it easier for referees to spot the ball. They didn't have to bring the chains out as often. They You know, after an incomplete pass, he could more accurately bring the ball back and spot it because he could tell where the 23 was versus the 22 um and then like two, two or three weeks later he get he convinces wisconsin to mark to let him mark their field and like i said earlier only one game being televised per week he happened to line the field for the wisconsin rice game in 1954 and so all these people across the country are watching this game they see these lines and it was just like you know, positive reaction to it. Um, and by 1956, so a year and a half after he first put those lines down, the NCAA mandated them. And the and then the NFL followed, you
1: know, a year or two later. So you, Boy, know, I, you, you think uh, about the appearance of yeah. the football, he was critical. And I hope he got rich off of that. He didn't. <laughs> <laughs> so he changes the game of football. You know, yeah. and he doesn't get a penny out of it. Boy, oh boy! But he he, he, he felt good the rest of his life every time he yeah, yeah, watched the yeah. game, right? Yeah, I'm in touch with two of his sons. They're,
3: yeah, you know, just he never tried to make money off of it. You know, he just was happy he made a difference.
1: Um, that is really great, Tim. What haven't we covered? I mean, I know we've only covered like one one thousandth of of the information in your book. And again, for our listeners, you want to learn about the game of football you have to go out and you have to get the book how football became football is there anything that we haven't covered that you think is just vital for us to talk about right now
0: uh no you know, I think we did
3: a pretty good pretty good job I mean you know there's always there's a thousand things to talk about right and I, you know I do this you know I use, I was posting daily for for a long time but now now it's a couple times a week but always creating there's always there's all these uncovered stories out there so um you know and a lot of them are amusing and i I, you know i think if there's one thing that i would kind of just try to leave is that leave people with is that you know the rules of football are they weren't predetermined there there's nothing that you know they're just made up rules it's an arbitrary game if we wanted to change the rules tomorrow to allow you to say you got to make 12 yards to get a first down or seven or two. You could, we could change it. You know, all the rules are just made up, <laughs> you know, yeah. but they've just evolved over time. Little tweaks year after year, they compound just like interest. And you end up with a game dramatically different than what we started with, which was rugby. You know, yeah. And it's a great game.
1: Yeah. Hey, hey, Tim, how does someone purchase your books? Where do they go to to get your books?
3: So it's mostly on Amazon, but, you know, it's available on like, uh, uh, you know, pretty much just type in how football became football. It's, you know, Barnes and Noble. Uh, I think you can get it through like Kmart and Walmart and places like that. Uh, not all online. It's not you're not going to find it in a bookstore. Um, and then, you know, my my blog newsletter is footballarchaeology.com. And, you know, you can subscribe for that, to that for free. You know, there's a paid version of it too, but you get, you know, about a third of the stuff
1: for free. Fantastic. Tim, thank you so much for joining us. This has been, this has been incredible. I, I, again, I, I love history. I love football and, and what you're doing is, is unbelievable.
3: Well, Thank you. But, you know, you guys are the ones that are out there on the field teaching, you know, young men and, you know, here and there, probably young women, you know, to enjoy the game and, um, you know, play it in a safe manner, uh, but compete and try to kick the other guy's butt, you know, whoever's across from you. And, you know, that's, it's a, you know, it's a tough game, but it's a beautiful game and there's a lot of lessons to be learned.
1: So thank you for doing that. Well, thank you. And, and can we get you on again sometime? Yeah. But uh, anytime you've got my, you've got my phone number. Yep. I certainly do. Again, thank you so much. And, and I want to thank, uh, Paul and, and, and Tom as well. Um, you know, they, they are so supportive of this and do so much work, uh, to get this thing done. Um, you know, Paul will now edit this thing and, and get it up into SoundCloud so that everyone can listen to it. Um, so thank you guys for for everything you do. And I, I want to thank our listeners as well. We we couldn't do this. And, and the feedback that I'm getting, um, more and more people are listening to this podcast all the time. And again, a little bit of a departure tonight. We weren't talking about some hot topic or something, but uh, what we talked about was certainly um, entertaining. So with that, uh, I'd like to thank everybody for listening and good night, everyone.